0: Welcome to this podcast from Penrith Church of Christ. If there is anything in this message that you would like to talk about further, please go to our website, www.cofcpenrith.org. That's www.cofcpenrith.org. Now let's listen to Pastor Dave Crocker. As we head towards uh, the end of the year, I thought it would be good to... Look at something again that we've we've talked about uh, a bit over the last kind of twelve months, and, and and again refocus on I guess on our mandate. You can see them on the banners there: love God, love people. So I wanted to come back and and look at that again. And I love cricket. Who loves cricket? Who is so happy that the Ashes are on? I think it. it I've it, I've been. I've been looking forward to this in anticipation and the, the, it's finally arrived. We haven't got enough screens in our house. Yesterday I had uh, sport on the TV, sport on the laptop. I was following things on my phone. It was just like I just need another couple of screens to keep track of everything that's going on. I'm in, I'm in, I'm in heaven Right now and and cricket uh, These days I have to kind of talk about sport Because I don't play it like I used to But I was a, I was a wicketkeeper batsman Back in, in, in my heyday And um, I haven't played top class cricket But I managed to do okay at grade cricket Back in New Zealand And, and uh, as an opening batsman In my final year of playing I managed to average About 55 which wasn't a a bad season. I set a record for the fastest fifty off 15 deliveries, which was pretty good going. I mean, I got that day. I got out for 86 off 24 and missed the record for the fastest hundred, which was a little bit disappointing. But I, I, I remember my my worst moment on a cricket field came as a 12 year old. I'd had, uh, I'd had a, a pretty good season up to that point. I got a couple of big scores. I did really well at uh, the uh, trials. And I made an age group team for Otago. And so I'm out there, my very first uh, representative match. My, my family's all there, there watching. And, and I, I proudly walked out. We won the toss. We had a bowl. Things were going Pretty well, and, and I remember before the match, the, the coach of the team said, "Make sure you're wearing all the right gear. There'll be no sympathy if you get hurt and you're not wearing the right gear." And you can probably see a little bit about where this story is going. And the, the bowler that I was facing was a little bit quicker than the, the guys that I was used to in my team. And, and well, as, as the wicketkeeper, I was just a little bit slow getting my gloves together, and I, I copped the ball where no male on the planet ever wants to cop the ball. And some of you have just been sick in your mouth thinking about that. (laughs) Guys have just started crossing their legs involuntarily. And and I hit the deck and I was was in tears for about two hours solid. It's pretty hard wicket keeping when you've got tears streaming down your face. It was just the worst moment. I got absolutely no sympathy for my coach because he said, I told you to put all the right gear on. I said, but I've never worn a box wicket keeping before. No one told me I needed to wear a box wicket keeping. And I haven't played without a box since that moment. In fact, I wear a box around permanently these days, just in case. It's not true. Keep your eyes up. (laughs) But I learnt that that it's important to get the right things in place at the beginning. It's important to know what we should be doing and we shouldn't be doing. There's an old story, and I've probably used it here before, about a, a university lecturer who was teaching an introductory class to first-year university students on time management. Without saying a word, he walked in and he put a, a large glass vessel down on the, the table, two, two litres, and then he picked up four tennis ball-sized rocks and he put them into the glass jar very carefully and he said to the students, can I fit any more in? Is it full? And they said, no, it's full. And he said, really? Really? And he reaches under the table and he gets a bucket of gravel. And he pours the gravel into the box and he says, is it full? The students are starting to catch on a little bit. And one of them says, well, probably not. And he says, good. And he reached under and he brought out a bucket of sand and he poured the sand in. And he said, is it full? And by now they've caught on. And said, no, it's not full. And he said, good. And he got a bucket of water and filled up the glass jar with water. And then he says to the students, what's the point of this illustration? One of the students was super eager. You know, every class has got those students that just love to answer the questions that the rest of the class don't like. Up goes the hand, and this person says, the point of the illustration is that no matter how full your schedule is, if you try really hard, you can always fit more into it. The teacher yelled at the student and said, that's not the point at all. He said, the point of the illustration is this. If you don't put the big rocks in first, you'll never get them in at all. Over the years, I I think I've complicated Christianity. I don't know about anyone else in here, but it seems that to get my head around all the God stuff that there is will take a lifetime of learning. I know plenty of people have spent so many years studying theology and it amazes me how much they... They seem to know. And I've spent a lot of time over in energy over the years studying the, the Word of God, which is probably a good thing as your pastor that I know a little bit about the, the Bible and I understand how to read it and and, and what kind of is going on a little bit anyway. I've spent time trying to get my head around eschatology, which is about end times, understanding Christology, who Jesus is and what he's about. I spent so many hours while I was at high school arguing about creation and evolution, my biology class, and kind of trying to work out all these these sorts of things. And and none of that stuff is bad. But for me, I began to realise one day when I was chatting with someone who was new to faith, I realised I'd made a fundamental mistake. I was so busy trying to fill my jar up with sand and gravel and water that I realised I had some rocks that I hadn't put in my glass jar. And I think it's important for us to realise we've got to get the right things in the jar before we start filling it up with everything else. Have you ever felt like Christianity was really complicated? Like there's just so much to know. I mean, I've got a thin Bible. It's a it's a ultra thin. They call it. A, I love preaching from thin Bibles. But there's over 1,300 pages in in my Bible, even though it it's super thin. And there's just so much in it. And 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 we talk about all this God stuff so much. And I feel like sometimes. We make it so complicated that we just don't know where to go and what to do. Anyone else felt like that? Anyone have felt like, well, what is this all about? Especially if you're new to faith. Like I've been in church my whole life. I've been to Bible college. I've been to so many conferences. I've been a pastor for a lot of years. I've had an opportunity to learn a lot of stuff. And yet there's, I feel like there's so much I don't know. Like, what would it be like... To walk into a church for the first time and start this journey and just like, it so much doesn't make sense. So much of what we do as a church doesn't make sense. Look at the things we've already done this morning we've done worship, we've had communion. Now, out of context, both those things are weird. Some of you will be shocked, but communion is weird. We have this little cup and this little cracker and we pass it around and we talk. It's weird. And it doesn't always make sense. And that's why here we're, we're working hard to, to, to make it accessible and understandable and, and, and a bite-sized chunk so that we can begin to get our head around some of these things that we do that are just weird. Maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm the weird one. A little bit of good news for us this morning. If you find this whole thing complicated, people have been finding it complicated from the beginning. In Jesus' day, people found this whole thing incredibly complicated. They've told us that there are 613 commandments from the Old Testament. Laws of things you can and can't do. I've said it before, but they're, they're, they tell us that there are 365 negative commands, and other words, things you can't do. 365 things that you can't do. One for every day of the year. How good your maths? What does that leave? 248. There are 248 positive commands, things you must do. And I found this out recently that that's the exact number of bones and organs in the human body. Amazing, isn't it? There's not only are there all these laws, these rules and regulations, most of which actually don't apply to us today, lots of them are in context of the time period they're in and, and, and what that all looks like and, and things like that. There's all this stuff in there, but then there's these different sects of Judaism, different organisations and groups that were teaching different things and believing different things and following different laws and emphasising different things and trying to work out what was important and what wasn't important. It was messy, it was complicated and they were becoming increasingly out of touch with the world around them. When a new rabbi would would come to town or, or would be in position, people would ask them questions. To work out who they are and what they believe in so that they could put them in in a box. Oh, you're that kind of Pharisee. you be a bit like us pointing at someone saying, well, that person's a Catholic and that person's a Baptist. Believe in the same God but have a different understanding and emphasis on on different things. And they're trying to work out who people were by what they believed. And a classic way of answering or asking a question to work out who the rabbi is, is was all about eternal life. How do we get eternal life? And so it's no surprise that in Luke chapter 10, if you've got your Bible and you want to follow along, this guy comes up to Jesus to test him. And he says, Rabbi, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Verse 26, what is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind and love your neighbour as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you'll live. It makes sense in context of what would happen that they would ask Jesus that question. What must we do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus' answer is incredibly revealing about who he is and what his focus is. What he sees is important. And I love how Jesus flips questions back on people. They ask him a question, and Jesus asks him the question, Well, what do you think it is? And this guy got the correct answer. He, he absolutely nailed it. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You know, I've been over a Christian for over 30 years when I noticed something for the first time. When we put this passage with another passage where. Talks about this, I've realized that Jesus has basically broken the entire Bible, and I've talked about this here before, down to two things. Love God, love people. All the Old Testament, all the law, everything that that Moses was given that, that, that began to unfold, all of our, our scripture was broken down by Jesus into two things. Love God, love people. I, I love the simplicity of that. In fact, the title of my message, if you're taking notes, is Simple Christianity. I think we've overcomplicated things, and I don't think it needs to be complicated. I think at the core of who we are and what we believe, it's real simple. We love God, we love people. Everything else is around that, adds to that, strengthens that, points at that. We love God. And we love people. I I love that. I'm a a simple kind of guy. I like things that make sense and are simple and are memorable. And I love a test that's only got two answers. Love God. Love people. And again today I want to unpack those two things. Maybe from a different angle that we've come at it over the last year or so. But those two things. Are the two large rocks that we have to get into our jar Before we add anything else We have to get those things in there And get those things right Because everything else comes from that So we're called to love God There were four things that, that went into that particular phrase Love God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength that the, Throughout the Bible there's a particular word used for our heart It's the word "cardia." It's the word that we get, cardiac, and all the things that go around our heart from. It's the Greek word for that. But it means more than just our heart. It talks about our physical, our emotional, and our spiritual life. Our heart is the source of our feelings, of our emotions. Feelings like joy, sorrow, despair, happiness, sadness, cheerfulness. They're all wound up in, in our hearts. And to love God with all our heart means to love Him deeply and personally. Like the love shared between a father and a son or a husband and a wife. We're, we're to love God with all of our physical, emotional and spiritual life. Then there's the second part of that, the, the word soul. It means the entire life of a person. It's our eating, our sleeping, going to work, walking around. It's the conversations that we have. It's what we do from moment to moment, day to day. It's all of who we are. Perhaps the best way to understand it is the soul is both who we are and what we are. If someone walks up to you and says, who are you? Our normal response is to tell them our name. So I'm David Crockett. Now, that communicates a little bit, but not a lot. Communicates that my name is David and my family of origin is the Crocker family. But it doesn't tell them anything about who we are. Tells them about the label that we wear. If we want to tell someone who we are, we need to give more information. I might say something like, well, I'm a husband. Now, that communicates something. It communicates, I've got a wife. I might go further and say, oh, I'm a father, and that communicating something else. I've, I've got kids. I'm a New Zealander, and that communicates that I'm awesome. It's all these things that we begin to, as we unpack more of who we are, we begin to get a bigger picture of what it means to be you. Because who you are is not the label that you wear, it's not the name on your driver's license. Who you are is so much deeper and richer and more beautiful than that. And loving God with all our soul means allowing God to define who and what we are. Because I'm a Jesus follower. And that's a label that we should wear. It says, we love God with our mind. This is a word that wasn't originally in the Ten Commandments. Jesus says that the it says, "Love God with all our mind," and a mind is the center for all intellectual activity. The, the crazy thing about loving God with our mind, and that, that that there's this thing that gets added to these this command is because the Ten Commandments came from God in the first place. God's the only one that can add to the Ten Commandments and Jesus here is saying heart, soul and strength which was what was in Deuteronomy but he's adding mind to it because we've got to bring our our thinking and our learning and our capacity, our intelligence to the table as well. When I was at at university a, a, a lot of arguments about Christianity and not Christianity and all that kind of happens at university. It's a real time of exploration. And one of the classic ones that, that I used to hear all the time is oh, if you want to be a Christian, you've got to check your brain out at the door. You know, only, only silly people are Christians, only people who can't think and reason. But that's simply not true. And loving God with our mind implies centering our learning, growing in our capacity to understand his vastness and his mystery, studying him. And that's while we've got to get the two rocks in our jar, we add the other stuff to it. We do take time to learn and discover. It's part of why we do things like this on a Sunday morning so we can begin to roll back some of the layers and understand a bit more about who God is and who we are in context of that. We begin to understand his power, his love, his grace, his beauty. We love God with all our strength. When he says strength here, he's not talking about how much you can bench press. He's talking about our energy output, our work, our our job. It's whatever that we put energy and effort into. Paul so eloquently explained it, what it means to love God with all our strength, when he said this from Colossians chapter 3 and verse 23. In all the work you are doing, work the best you can. Work as if you were doing it for the Lord, not for people. That's what it means to love God with our strength. And when we put those pieces together, it explodes with significance. Essentially, Jesus is saying to love God with all of ourselves, every fiber of your being. That's quite a command. It's hard enough to love our spouse or our children and those around us who we can see and touch and spend time with. How are we supposed to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength? We have to do it with His help. See, so Psalm 37 4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and He'll give you the desires of your heart. The word delight, it's, I've talked about this passage here probably many times now, it means to be soft and pliable means to allow God to mold us and to shape us as we allow God to do a work in our lives, as we allow God to shape us and mold us. and, and, And as we become more like him, the Bible says he gives us the desires of our heart. As we find our joy in him, he gives us the desires of our heart. And the great thing about that is when we've centered our life on God, when we're focused on loving him, the desires of our heart are God-centered desires anyway because he's placed them there in the first place. As we allow God to shape us and mold us, our heart becomes his heart. Our desires become his desires. John Piper is a theologian and an author of a, a book called Desiring God. He sums it this way. Take all of your longing and focus it on God until he satisfies it completely. As we draw near to God, he comes nearer to us. As we learn to love him more, he opens our hearts to greater love. A prolific author, he's a fantastic writer, man by the name of Max Licato, explains it like this. God rewards those who seek him, not those who seek doctrine or religion or systems or creeds. Many settle for these lesser passions, but the reward goes to those who settle for nothing less than Jesus himself. And what is this reward? What awaits those who seek Jesus? Nothing short of the heart of Jesus. So how do we actually love God? What does that look like for us? Well, I think we love God when we engage with who he is. When we pursue relationship with him. When we desire him. We're created in the image of God and we can just learn a lot about who God is as we discover truth about ourselves. We can also learn who we are when we learn truth about God because we're created in the image of God. We might be a pale reflection, but as we become more like Christ, become more like God, we, we can learn who he is about from looking inside ourselves and in a lot of ways. And I think a lot of the process of how we love someone here on earth is a reflection of how we grow in our love for God. When Kerry and I became friends, we became friends because we had some things in common. We had similar friends. We were both at Bible college together. We were around each other at various times. And then we discovered that we had some things in common on a personal level. We, we both had degrees in science. I remember sitting down and having a conversation about science with Kerry, which for most people would drive you Nuts, but we just graduated And, and, and then we realised That we actually enjoyed spending time together I realised I liked her company I wanted to spend increasing amounts Of time with her In fact, I began to arrange my schedule So that I could spend more time with her As we Went down that path As many do, we discovered a love for each other That we had shared dreams Our journeys, our struggles, our hopes Our expectations began to align In times, our plans became the same. Our dreams were shared. Our hearts were joined. And I think with God, it's a similar process. He he shared his story with us. It's called the Bible. I can discover a lot about who he is as I read it, as other people share about who he is, and I've learned and I've, I've grown. Over time, I've discovered that as I've growing in love for God as I've spent time with him, my hopes and dreams become centred around him his heart was becoming my heart love is a process that takes time and commitment to foster it's a journey of discovery I love now that I've been married for 45 years how much I know Kerry, how, how close we are one day I know we'll become those people that finishes, finish each other's sentences. It's a lifelong goal of mine to start a sentence and stop and Kerry can just carry on. That we will end up dressing the same and, you know, those awesome eighties matching tracksuits and floros. We walk around the street together. <laughs> oh, I'm joking. I will never be that person. But it's a great thing when you have spent so much time with each other that you know each other. You know what makes someone happy and sad, what brings them joy, what energises them. And I think for us, the process with God is it's exactly the same. There is no substitute, there is no shortcut. There's, I wish there was a pill I could take or a chant I could say or something that would just make everything right. Make my relationship with him perfect. But there's not. There's no substitute for spending time with him and getting to know him. How do we align our hearts? How do we get to know him? Well, read our Bible. It's important. And I don't know how much of the Bible you read and don't read. But if you've never read much of the Bible before, just start somewhere. Read the Gospels. Just Read a a few verses and and, and begin to think about what it's saying and and maybe what it might be meaning. And if you've got questions, there's an incredible resource called Google. Most of the time, Google gets it right. We talk to him. I think, again, we overcomplicate prayer and what it means and what it looks like. But the heart of it, it's talking to God, communicating We spend time with other people who are on the journey. It's one of the reasons we gather together at church is because we gather as family. It's one of the reasons we're having lunch together today. We we spend time with others who are on this journey as well because it enriches them and enriches us. It helps us in our path. It helps us grow and we contribute. We're, we're part of the family. We've all got a role to play and we've all got things that we can bring to the table and some can do more than others and, and, and some might seem like it's significant and others insignificant, but we all have a part to play. We all have a role in God's family. And we orient our life around him, we don't add him on. And then the second part of it was that we love people. The second command Jesus said was to love your neighbor as yourself. He's quoting from Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 18. And it was also an incredibly misunderstood passage. See, during the lifetime of Jesus, as I said, the rabbis would argue about various different things and, and, and they got really good at being incredibly religious and not so good at being incredibly relational. And so the, the common thinking of the day that Was that the neighbour Someone's neighbour was a Jew Who strictly followed the law So this is what the Pharisees would be teaching them Your neighbour is someone who obeys all of God's laws And anyone who doesn't do that We don't like them In fact that, that they would reject it. There was hatred and, and, and suspicion of people Who weren't just like them And Jesus sought to broaden The definition of of a neighbour, and so he told the story of the Good Samaritan, and which I, I, I'm not going to re-go through today. Maybe a better title for for the Good Samaritan would have been the loving neighbour, in order to teach them that a neighbour is any person that they encounter. The question that Jesus, and I love how he so he flipped the switch so script so quickly. The question isn't, who is my neighbour? The question that Jesus actually answered was, am I being a neighbour? Jesus doesn't answer the question, who is my neighbour? He just goes ahead and assumes everybody is your neighbour. And therefore the question is, are you being a good neighbour? Are you being a neighbour to the person that you meet in the street, to your, your next door neighbours, to your friends and your family and those that you come in contact with? Are you being a neighbour? Loving our neighbour is second only in importance to loving God because loving people really is just an extension of loving God. Jesus couldn't have given us the greatest commandment without also giving us the second greatest commandment because the two are completely entwined. Loving people is the visible manifestation of loving God. Gary Chapman is a best-selling author and he wrote a book that many of you will have read or at least heard of called The Five Love Languages. He identifies five primary ways in which people express and receive love. Words of affirmation, quality time, acts of service, physical touch, and gifts. We can use our words to express our love for God through prayer, through singing, through the conversations that we have. We can spend quality time with God by reading our Bible, by praying, by being in, in a worship service like this. But how often, or how do you perform sorry, an act of service for God? Without serving another person. How do you give a gift to God without giving it to another person? How do you physically touch God without physically touching people? You can't. But when we serve, when we touch, when we give gifts to other people, we're doing it for God. Jesus summed it up like this. I tell you the truth from Matthew 25, 40. Anything you did for the least of these, you did for me. An expression of love for other people is an expression of love for God because loving God means loving people. And loving people means going out of our way, rearranging our schedules, using our resources to meet the needs of other people around it, us. When you put your arms around someone, give them a shoulder to cry on, you're filling the greatest commandment. We give someone a gift, we're fulfilling the greatest commandment. We're loving our neighbour, we're loving God. Do you know that what the Bible says is the hallmark of a Christian? It's not our views on abortion or homosexuality or same-sex marriage. It's not attending a church. It's not a doctrinal stance on salvation and end times. It's got nothing to do with that. The hallmark of someone who is a Jesus follower is the life of love that they live. Jesus said it like this. All people will know that you are my followers if you love each other. That's John 13, 35. So this kind of begs the question, how are you loving people? The good news for us, worship team, you can come join me. The good news for us is that the Bible gives us a little test to see how we're going in loving people. It describes what perfect love looks like for us, and you'll find it in 1 Corinthians 13. It says, love is patient and kind, it is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude it does not demand its own way, it is not irritable and it keeps no record of being wronged. It does not rejoice about injustice but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up, never loses faith it's always hopeful and endures through every circumstance. Love will last forever. How do you measure up? If that's a test that we can run, put that Through the filter of some of your relationships Some of the people you come in contact with Maybe not people in this room Because we all love each other unconditionally in here And it's all perfect But what about people that Irritate you Rub you up the wrong way People that you don't like for some reason How are you going in the love test with them See the problem for me Is I'm not actually as good at loving people as I'd like to be I struggle loving people sometimes Who are different than me Anybody else? That's exactly what the problem the Pharisees had that Jesus was addressing. And we do it so easily. Someone who doesn't think the same, look the same, act the same, speak the same. We, we can not love them as much as someone who looks and speaks and acts just like us. We struggle to love sometimes people who have made mistakes. People who have hurt us or wronged us. That's exactly what Jesus was dealing with in the story of the Good Samaritan. And have time to go into the... The Samaritans and the Jews and what was going on there Sometimes I have trouble with people who are succeeding Doing really well and particularly in things that I'd like to be succeeding at We're so quick to judge others You know something I discovered and I find it incredibly humbling It it shocks me every time I see it I realise that often I have an issue with people who have an issue with or That are struggling with something I struggle with when, when I Don't like someone and I can't work out Why I often stop and look at what's going on In my life What, what are the things about me that are making me react To that person in, in that particular way I'm not saying this is an example Of me but Sometimes we, we might say well oh, I don't like That person and it, it might be because it's a, They're a poor person and we've Growing up with nothing ourselves Or we're struggling with finance ourselves And we take something that is an issue for us And we project it onto other people And we show a lack of love for someone Because of an issue in our life And it can have absolutely nothing to do with that person at all So we've got this little test that we can run through And I want to encourage you to ask yourself the questions What what changes could I make? How am I going in my relationship? Not with the people that are easy to love but with those that it takes a bit of effort. Where am I really at? What does that really look like? Think about your relationships at home and at work. How did you treat that person who said something silly the other day? How do you respond when someone does the wrong thing or lets you down? Let's not forget John 13, 35. All people will know you are my followers if you love one another. Imagine what this church would be like if we all got better at love. Imagine how your family might change. If you got better at love, imagine how the world's view of the church might be better or healthier, get a needed polish, if we could actually love God and love people. The first step to change is recognising that something's wrong. I want to encourage you as we finish this year that this whole Christian thing doesn't have to be complicated. Being a follower of Jesus doesn't have to be complicated. It's one of the reasons we stripped so many of our phrases and our nice little bits and words and all the nice buzz things that lots of churches like and have and just made it real simple. Love God, love people. Because if we do those two things, nothing else really matters. Nothing else is actually that important for us. But loving God and loving people, thats I want to be the hallmark of who we are as a church. I wanted to... In December, restate that again as we are moving forward into a new year. We've just got to be about loving God and loving people. And yet we can't just take that for granted. It takes work and it takes effort and it it takes change on on our behalf. But I want us to be a church that no matter who walks through those doors, they'll find a place of love and acceptance here. That no matter who we encounter out there, we will show and demonstrate the love of God because it's the love of God that's going to make a difference. It's the love of God that's going to change people's life. God, I thank you that we can love you because you first loved us. That we can have a relationship with you because of what you've done sending Jesus on the cross. God, help us to be people who get better at love. Some ways it seems funny to even have to talk about this, but God, I know we're human and I know we struggle and this was a struggle in the days of Jesus. This is certainly a struggle for us now. God, may the hallmark of this church be a church, first and foremost, loves you. And out of that love for you may flow a love for people. God, may this always be a place where people are welcome and accepted and loved for who they are, not where they've come from or what they've done or how they speak or how they dress or what type of car they drive. But God, we just love people. God, show us the areas of our life where we need to change. God, start with me, with my heart. God, I, I pray you reveal to me fresh the areas that I need to work on. God, give me a greater love for others and a grace for others, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Penrith Church of Christ. If there was anything in this message that you would like to talk further about, please go to our website on www.cofcpenrith.org www.cofcpenrith.org